We're continuing this morning our series on James after our little interruption from Steve Browning of last week. So I'd like to read with you just to start off from James chapter 2, the verses 26, sorry, the verses 14 to 26. We've had a good lengthy introduction in the book of James, and now we're going to be kind of going through every Sunday section by section, just taking pieces of the text. And this is the very famous section of James, which talks about the relationship between faith and works. So starting with James 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So James starts this passage with the sentence or with the question, actually two questions. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith and does not have works? Can that faith save him? And I think that question, can that faith save him, or that word save, is key to understanding this passage, but maybe in a little bit different way than most of us have been used to. If you ask the question, what does it mean to be saved? What does Jesus save us from? The traditional Western, American, evangelical, Reformed answer is that to be saved means that we are saved from the wrath of God, from eternal punishment, and that we are then able to spend eternity with God in heaven. And I'd like to suggest that that's not necessarily incorrect, but that it's just a piece of the picture. What I'd like to do this morning is, with that question in the back of our minds, read through quite carefully what James has to say here and see what James says that it means to be saved. Because James has asked this question, what 
What kind of faith is it that saves us? And then, obviously, he must be giving an answer to that. And you'll notice that there's no question of after death in this passage at all. Nothing. I think James is talking about something else. And he immediately goes into his first comment. If you have your Bible, you can look at it. I'm not projecting it right now. He says... The very first thing is, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is that? Maybe another way of saying the same thing. What kind of salvation is that? If you won't help somebody else, and if somebody else doesn't get helped, what in the world kind of salvation is that? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And I can't help but wonder to myself, if James, as he was writing this down, was thinking of his brother, Jesus who one time told a story, and he told a story because there was a lawyer who came to him trying to put him to the test and asked him, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The same question. What should I do to be, we would call that, saved? This lawyer comes up to him and says the same thing. What do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will what? Live. There's all this salvation ideas uh, uh, interwoven in these passages. And then, of course, you remember the story. The lawyer asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story that we commonly know as the good Samaritan, the injured man, uh, the, Samar- uh, the injured man by the side of the road, robbed on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, the priest passes him by, the Levite passes him by, the, the, the theologians pass him by, and the Samaritan, his enemy, someone of a different ethnic background. You all, you all know this story, it's very familiar. And it's the Samaritan that showed himself to be the neighbor who put his faith into action. And Frederick Buechner says this about the story of the Good Samaritan. I prefer to think that the difference between the Samaritan and the other two was not just that he was more morally sensitive than they were, but that he had, but that he had as they had not, the eye of a poet or a child or a saint. An eye that was able to look at the man in the ditch and see in all its extraordinary unexpectedness the truth itself, which was that the deepest, that at the deepest level of their being, he and that other one there were not entirely separate selves at all, not really at all. 
your life and my life flow into each other as wave flows into wave. And unless there is peace and joy and freedom for you, there can be no real peace or joy or freedom for me. To see reality, not as we expect it to be, but as it is, is to see that unless we live for each other and in and through each other, we do not really live very satisfactorily. We do not really live satisfactorily. Another way of saying we're not really saved. That there can be really, that there can really be life only when there really is, in just this sense, love. This is not just the way things ought to be. Most of the time, it is not the way we want things to be. It is the way things are. And not for one instant do I believe that it is by accident that it is the way things are. That would be quite an accident. So James starts off with this question, what's the relationship between faith and works? If you have faith and no works, can that save you? What is salvation? And then he tells this story, shortened version, I believe, of the Good Samaritan. And he says salvation means that we're connected. That as Beigner puts it, we, our lives flow into each other as wave flows into wave. And unless there is peace and joy and freedom for you, there can be no real peace or joy or freedom for me. And it's this horizontal looking out and seeing the other. And understanding that we're connected. And understanding that I have the the responsibility and the privilege and the joy to reach out the hand, to bind the wound, to pour ointment over, to comfort, to give the ride, to pay the bill for the one who has been left on the side of the road, even if that one is my enemy. And James, in this, in this wonderful way, just weaves faith and works so together that there's just, it's just one fabric. There's no taking them apart. You don't need a theological treatise here. It's one thing. And then James goes into a little riff on faith and works. He says, faith by itself... He says in verse 18, I'm not going to project it, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these couple of sentences. There's some theological work you could do here, but just for the sake of time, I'm going to kind of skip over them to what James does next. He says in verse 20, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? In other words, you want me to prove it to you? You want me to show you that these two can't be pulled apart? That you can't theologize and write all your articles in your books and pull these two apart? They belong together. 
And then he gives two examples. And the first one is Abraham. And this text we will project. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? And this word justified means put things together. Uh, make things fit together properly. Was not, our, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So James says, here's Abraham. And God called him to do this amazingly difficult thing, an impossible thing. And he went, and he did it. Offer up his only son, the son of the promise, to God. And he went, and he did it. And his trust in God and his willingness to act on that trust were woven of one cloth because, I don't know if you noted this, James says, his faith was active along with his works and his faith was completed. James uses that word completed. We've run across that word in other places in James, at least the Greek version of it. It's that word telos, telos. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about that when we, when we uh, noted that James had used the word perfect. The word perfect is that same Greek word. And it means purpose. It means goal. It means your, your doing, your being, the kind of person or the kind of thing for which you are created. You are meeting your purpose. So when Abraham trusted God and did what God called him to do, James says his faith was completed by his works. That was one thing. He, was, he became who he had been meant to be. And then what was the result of that, says James? He was called a friend of God. And be really clear on this. God's being a friend of Abraham was not based on what Abraham believed or did. It wasn't that Abraham had to believe certain things or do certain things in order to earn God's friendship. It's the other way around. God was a friend to him, and Abraham, by his what he did, by his movements, connected into that and was able to draw on that for what he needed to do in his life to become complete. So the very first example from the scriptures that James gives is this, is this magnificent example of Abraham, which resulted in Abraham being complete, reaching his telos, his purpose, and being a friend of God. Don't you long to be a friend of God? What would that look like in your life if that were, if that were to grow, if, if you were to be more and more aware of that? If 
you were to understand that you don't go through life alone, that you're becoming whole, that you're becoming mature, that you're becoming who, you've cre- who you were created to be is not dependent upon your own efforts, at least not dependent alone on your own efforts. What if you knew that on every peak and in every valley, God was there, and not only was he there, he's your friend. You all know what friends do, and you all know what friends mean. And you all know how good it is to have someone that you can call up when you need it. Or someone that will put that arm around you. Or someone that will listen. Someone that will understand. Someone that will empathize. Someone that might go and fight for you. Someone that would protect you. Someone that would help you when you need it. So that you would know that you are never in this life alone. Do you know God in that way? Is He your friend? And what would it look like if that relationship were to grow in the sense that you were tapping more and more into it and it was becoming more and more one of part of the fabric of your life and then you understand already that there's no pulling apart of faith and works here. This is not about getting what do I need to do to get the ticket to go somewhere. What's the percentage of faith and what's the percentage of works? That's not what this is about. This is about a whole complete life in relationship, in friendship with God. Which means that I trust Him and I do what He's called me to do. And in that process, I become whole and complete. The people around me become whole and complete. And we become more and more people who are friends with God and moving through life with Him in us and, and, and by our sides, before us and behind us. And then James gives another example, and I think with this second example, he's trying to make another point. In the same way... Was not Rahab the prostitute, and you remember probably the story of the city of Jericho, this, this fairly significant city on the eastern border of, um, of Israel as the Israelites were coming into, into Canaan um, under Joshua's leading, and Jericho was like the first big city they had to attack with these great big walls, and Josh, Joshua sent the spies into the city to, to, to case it out, case the joint out, and they ended up in the home of Rahab, and the city officials uh, somehow heard that these spies were there, so they came to Rahab's house, and Rahab basically told them a fib and said they were here, but they left. Well, actually, they were hidden under some flax and straw up on the roof. And when they finally left safely the next morning, Rahab said to them, I've heard about your God, I've heard about you people, and when you do come and take this city, I'd really appreciate it if you could spare my life and the life of my family and the people that I love. 
In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified, brought into right relation by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? The writer of the book of Hebrews, you're probably familiar with this verse, describes Rahab's faith in this way. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. A friendly welcome to the spies. What was the result of Ahab's, of Rahab's combination of faith and works? What was the result of what she did? It's a little different than Abraham's. James says Abraham became a friend of God. What happened to Rahab? She was taken up in the community of God's people. She and her family. She became a part of Israel. She became a part of the community. She became a part of this colony that was being established in the land of Canaan to show the whole world what it looks like when the kingdom of God is established somewhere. And Rahab, who was a foreigner, who was an outsider, who was a prostitute, who by no earthly standard should have anything to do with his community, was brought in by what she believed and by what she did. So you see in James here, in these two examples, you see the vertical friends with God and the horizontal taken up into the community. See how James is doing that? And there again, I just, I just simply cannot understand why it is and how it can be that our tradition has taken this whole faith and works thing and turned it into the question, what do I need to believe or do in order to get get the ticket through the pearly gates? I just simply cannot understand that. Because that's not what James is talking about. He's talking about how we live how we become whole, how we enter into right relationship with God, how we connect with the friendship and love of God, and how we connect with the community of people around us. We become friends of God. That is, we tap into His friendship. We get into right relationship with the community. No person goes hungry or naked or abused or oppressed or imprisoned or marginalized. James is not trying to tell us what percentage of faith and works we need to have in order to get the ticket, in order to get into the lifeboat. He's describing what what life in this community is like. He's describing salvation. And Diana Butler Bass makes these comments about salvation. The root concept of salvation is salvus, meaning to make whole or to heal. 
Salvation is about healing here, now, making wounded people whole. When Jesus healed, they experienced salvus, God's salvation. They followed him. Lives were changed and transformed. Disciples gave up riches and goods that they might inherit eternal life. Tax collectors abandoned their jobs and surrendered their social standing to eat with him. Children, slaves, soldiers, peasants, fishermen, farmers, prisoners, the sick, the disabled. When they encountered Jesus, they found salvation, the wholeness, the healing, the oneness that got with God that had only been the stuff of longing. Every miracle, every act of hospitality, all the bread broken and wine served, everything that Jesus did saved people long before Rome arrested and murdered him. Again, there's this cloth, this cloth woven out of one fabric, this wholeness. This is a hard thing for us to get a hold of because, again, we, we, just, we just have, have been steeped from, from the very beginning in this idea that a fundamental aspect of the Christian faith is the question, what happens to me after I die and how do I get through the pearly great gates and what, what, what relationship is faith and works? What percentage of faith and works do I need in order to do that? And underlying that is the idea that what's really finally important is what happens there. And what happens here is less important. My very first contact in foreign missions, in Eritrea, in a hospital, a mission hospital in Eritrea, was characterized by conflict between the missionaries over where should we spend our money. Should we spend our money on evangelism? Or should we spend our money on the hospital? And the Voices for Evangelism, of course, claimed that that was the most important thing. And this is a very subtle way of thinking that we find all around us. I mentioned earlier, a couple of weeks ago, and I'm, if you're... If you're anywhere on Christian um, social media, media at all, you know about the report on the Southern Baptist Convention that came out a couple of weeks ago over sex abuse in the, in the, in the Southern Baptist Church, particularly uh, as it connects to the executive committee. And it's a pretty devastating report. And there's recommendations. I think the Southern Baptists are having their big general assembly this week in Anaheim, California. So there are um, recommendations about what to do about this problem in the church that are going to cost money. This week a tweet appeared from, uh, don't put it up yet, from Denny Burke who is the president of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and a professor of, I believe, theology at Boyce College. And he tweeted this this week. 
And now you get yeah. The Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee's proposals for funding abuse reform, reform efforts in the denomination will cost the International Mission Board roughly $4.5 million. That $4.5 million is enough money to fund 75 missionaries. You catch what the thinking behind here is? I'm not sure that he's saying this, but he's raising the question. Where should we spend these four and a half million dollars? And what's important? What's most important? Now I'm putting words in his mouth, I admit. But is he suggesting that the survivors of sexual abuse in the church those who have been robbed and beaten and are lying by the side of the road are less important than the evangelism effort designed so that someone can go to heaven when he dies. And here's an answer from Dave Pittman, who himself is a survival of clergy sexual abuse. Saying it louder, one more time for those in the back row, if you think responding to sexual abuse in the church or subtitle any other actual care for actual persons or creation is a distraction from the gospel and the mission of the church, then you don't understand the gospel or the mission of the church. If James were living today, that's probably the way he might say it. These two things are woven together. Our connection with God, His connection with us, us together as community. And we believe it, we give our allegiance to it, we believe that it's true, we trust that it's true, and that guides how we act. Diane Langberg, who is a, I've also mentioned her numerous times from here, is a uh, psychologist primarily focuses on the issue of abuse, not only in the church, that's where she spends a lot of her time, but also outside. She tweeted this this week. Every time you leave your place of comfort and enter into the suffering of another, you are living and loving as God. A healing touch to the least, he says, is a healing touch to the highest. Matthew 25. There's no conflict between faith and works. We're not trying to figure out how to earn some ticket to somewhere. We're trying to learn what it means to be whole people. Me as an individual, us together as a community, we together as a world, and not just the people in the world, but also all of creation. How do we do that? And that requires our mind, our hearts, our beliefs, our allegiances, our professions, as well as what we do with our bodies, how we look at people, how we see them. And what we do to enter into the suffering of another and to give a healing touch 
Because a healing touch to the least is a healing touch to the highest. James, as a mouthpiece of his brother Jesus, calls us to be deeply connected to and rooted in God, in Christ, in the Holy Spirit, and then to go out into the world with his healing touch. It's not easy. It's not easy to get this concept because we haven't been taught it. And it's not easy to do it. It's hard. It requires that you move. It requires that you move out of your comfort zone. It requires that you come in contact with and learn about people who are hurting. It requires that you get requests from people that you don't know what to do with. It requires that you face problems that you don't have a solution for. It requires that you go through with people the valley of the shadow of death, not knowing if or when or how the light will break through. It requires signing that check or leaving your credit card at the inn. Actually touching somebody and binding his wounds and pouring your precious oil over those wounds and over those bandages and helping that person on your donkey and then walking with him slowly over that path as he or she moans in pain in the trust, in the faith, in the belief that you are contributing to this movement of God to restore the world, to make all things new, to save, because that's what salvation is all about. Amen.